Father God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for your word. Uh, We thank you for your word written uh, that we can look at right now. We thank you even more for your word made flesh to whom that word written points. And we pray that as we think about Jesus, our lasting sacrifice now, that you really would speak through your word to our hearts and shape us to be the people you want us to be. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how can we be confident? Uh, What basis do we Christians have for confidence in our faith? That's what I want us to think about today. What basis do we have for confidence? After all, even in a country like Australia where the majority religion is Christianity, we are in the minority. Uh, For a while, the latest census results show 61.1% of people identifying with Christianity McCrindle research has shown that less than one in seven of those who tick the Christianity box attend a church regularly. Indeed, of all Australians, only 8% attend a church at least once per month. 92% of our fellow Australians never or hardly ever go to church. We are in the minority. We say Jesus is a certain saviour, but most around us would dismiss their need for a saviour. We say Jesus is the only way to God, but many would, uh, many would say that there are many paths to God. We say that we can be sure of eternal life with God, but most would deny the possibility of any such confidence. A growing number dismiss the idea of God altogether. Some accuse us of being narrow-minded bigots. Many would look at droughts, fires, floods, mouse plagues and COVID-19 and say, how can there be a loving God at all? And as we struggle with the brokenness of this world, maybe there are times we ask ourselves the same question. How can we be so sure? What is the basis of our confidence? Today we come to the end of the important section uh, of Hebrews, Hebrews, uh, to the heart of Hebrews' message. It's a message about confidence. As early as 3.6, the preacher of this written sermon was encouraging his congregation to hold firmly to our confidence and the hope of which we glory. And in 4.16, to approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And now at the climactic moment of his message in 10.19, he bases his conclusion on the fact that we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, and finishes the section calling on the people in 1035, so do not throw away your confidence, it will be richly rewarded. The heart of Hebrews' message is a message of confidence. So as we face attacks on our confidence, whether it's the aggressive atheist, the intolerant relativist, the complacent Aussie pagan, or our own doubts amidst the trials of life, let's look to Hebrews' message of confidence. It's a simple message. We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus. By Jesus, sacrifice the once and for all sacrifice of himself. That is the basis of our confidence. Jesus, our lasting sacrifice. And we should not throw that confidence away. As we look at it together, we'll see three things. First, Jesus' cross is effective in saving us. Second, Jesus' covenant empowers us to become more holy. And so third, our confidence is established by Jesus' sacrifice. Here is our basis for confidence. Jesus, our lasting sacrifice. 
The cross of Christ is our lasting sacrifice. That's the central idea in this chapter. As the sacrifices, the priesthood and the old covenant itself are all superseded by Jesus' once and for all sacrifice of himself. Chapter 9 begins describing the tabernacle that was set up for worship by Moses, the pattern of which was later copied uh, in the temple that Solomon built to replace it. Uh, This was the holy place where God symbolically dwelt with his people. Now, I visited what seems to me a secular equivalent of a holy place a couple of weeks ago, the holy place to the God IT, the Apple store in George Street. You see, my Apple Watch was playing up, so I went to the store and was greeted at the door on the ground floor by one of the Apple's priests, uh, and he uh, he needed to direct me in further, and he took me up to the sent me up to the Genius Bar on the gra- on the uh, third floor, uh, and I got to to speak to one of the Genius priests up there. But he clearly wasn't enough of a genius to be able to sort my problem straight away. So my watch had to go deeper in to some even holier place where um, mere customers are not allowed to go uh, to be looked at by the high genius. Now, the structure of the tabernacle is similar. You enter the enclosure like ground floor of the Apple store and inside that enclosure is a tent, the holy place containing a few of the holy things, a bit like the genius bar. And then further in is the most holy place, or literally the holy of holies, containing the very holy things all overlaid with gold, especially the Ark of the Covenant. If you want more detail, you can read about it in Exodus 25. But what's relevant about this arrangement is that it is inadequate in giving us what we need, access to God. The very structure of the tabernacle emphasised limited access to God. All these layers. And only one priest, the high priest, was allowed into the Holy of Holies and he was only allowed in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even then he had to perform all these sacrifices for himself and for the nation before he could enter. Verse 8 concludes, the Holy Spirit was showing by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still functioning. The whole arrangement of the tabernacle showed our limited access to God. Only one man, once a year, and never without blood. The people were a long way from God. And this is because of the second limitation. The sacrifice of animals didn't really work. As verse 9 says, the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Animal sacrifices were God's designated way to deal with sin, but anyone could see their limitation. They basically recognised the sin, but they didn't really deal with it in a way that removed guilt. And the point of all this is that Jesus is different. He is the new order to which these inadequacies were all pointing. The third paragraph contrasts his priesthood with the old one in three ways. First, his ministry did more than gain access to the inner tent. He actually went into heaven itself, into the very presence of God. Secondly, the sacrifice he made in order to enter wasn't just animals, it was his own blood that was shed on the cross so that it could actually redeem sinners. And so thirdly, his blood actually does something about sin, not just outward covering, but inner healing 
He cleanses us of guilt so that we can worship the living God, that we can come into his presence. The old Levitical priests and their sacrifices were inadequate. But Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross was effective to save us. As verse 15 sums up, For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. The focus is very clearly on Jesus' death. And verses 16 to 22 give reason for that. It's all about the necessity of death to make a covenant effective. Uh, Verse 16 speaks of the case of a will. Now, that's a possible translation of that word, but unfortunately it hides something important. You see, the word that's translated will there is the same word that's translated covenant. The writer may be saying, as suggested by most modern translations, that a will is an illustration of why death is needed. That kind of covenant doesn't come into effect until someone dies. But more likely, I think, he's actually referring to the way covenants were ratified. To confirm a covenant in the ancient world, animals would be killed and cut in two and the covenanting parties would walk between the carcasses. And this way they would would curse call a curse on themselves if they didn't keep the covenant. May I be like these animals if... God did this with Abraham in Genesis 15. So blood had to be shed for a covenant to be put into effect. That's the point. In fact, the word blood dominates this passage 12 times in 15 verses. Uh, When you read about all the gold in the tabernacle in in, in verse 4, you probably imagine it's sort of a beautiful place of worship, but in reality it was a blood-stained place of death. And verse 22 really sums up why. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, blood demonstrates God's judgment on sin. And for sin to be forgiven, for unholiness to be cleansed, blood was required. And the point of all this is that Jesus' death, um, Jesus has dealt with it finally once and for all. His sacrifice is effective because as as has already been said, he didn't just go into the inner tent, he went into heaven itself. He didn't just offer animals, he offered himself. He didn't have to keep on doing it every year on the Day of Atonement. He did it once and for all. Uh, Every year the high priest would appear before the people. He would make his important sacrifices to deal with sin and he set foot into the most holy place. And the people waited with bated breath, not necessarily that confidently. And then as the high priest appeared a second time, they sighed a sigh of relief at evidence that the sacrifices had been accepted. But Jesus is different. He too appears, makes his sacrifice, enters the holy place and will appear a second time when he comes again. But he achieves so much more. Let me take it from the middle of verse 26. But now he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, 
but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Jesus' cross is effective in saving us. That's the point. It actually deals with sin. It actually deals with judgment. It actually gives us access to God. It works. That's the bottom line. So it gives us confidence. You see, I, I had no confidence in my old Apple Watch. Its screen stayed blank, so it couldn't use it at all. Uh, that's why I took it into the store. But it wasn't fixable, so they ended up replacing it on warranty. They replaced it with a new watch, which actually works. So now I have a new confidence, as well as three more years of warranty if it does let me down again. Jesus' cross is so much better than that. It works. It really does deal with our sin and offer us a welcome into God's presence. So we can have confidence. But more than that, as chapter 10 begins, the same theme is developed and expanded and we see that as Jesus' cross enables our salvation, so Jesus' covenant empowers our sanctification. To be, to be sanctified means to be made holy, to be set apart for God, to be prepared for his presence, pure. And it's, and it's what the whole sacrificial system was about. Uh, the emphasis on being sprinkled with blood so as to be cleansed from impurity. It's sin that mars us in God's sight, makes us unworthy to come before him. That, that's what the multi-layered tabernacle emphasised. And the blood of sacrifice was the way the old covenant dealt with that. But as chapter 10 begins, it's clear enough that the sacrificial system could never really satisfy the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. The realities are wrapped up in Jesus, who in 9.11 is described as high priest of the good things that are now already here. So Jesus brought the reality that the sacrificial system merely shadowed. See how verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 1 continues. The law can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. Because, verse 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Now, that's obvious enough when you think about it. No one seriously thought that killing a cow could make you right with God. That's why the sacrifices had to go on being repeated. Not because they really made people holy, but because they kept on reminding people that sin got in the way, that, 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 how, how they weren't holy, how they needed the Saviour who would come. So when Christ did come to inaugurate the new covenant, that was all set aside. Sacrifices themselves were never really the point anyway. That's what Psalm 40 says, quoted in verses 5 to 7. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. You see, the whole point of the covenant was a people with a desire to do God's will. That's, what, that's why the sacrifices didn't work, because the people didn't have that desire. The call of God's people is not sacrifices, but obedience. And, and it's Jesus who takes up that call. It's Jesus who does God's will by sacrificing himself. And so he sets aside the sacrificial system of the old covenant for the new covenant in his blood. Verse 10, and by that will, the will of God which Jesus obeyed, that is, by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. 
Sacrifices can't make us holy. Obedience can. And Jesus perfectly obeyed his Father's will even to death on a cross. And so the sacrifices of the law were set aside by Christ's one act of obedience. And so was the priesthood that conducted those sacrifices. The priesthood was set aside by Jesus' enthronement in heaven. Verses 11 to 13 allude to Psalm 110 and present a stark contrast between the old priests and Jesus, summed up by their posture. The priests stand, Jesus sits. The priests stand to perform their religious service. Day after day, again and again, they offer the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Jesus sits at God's right hand because he has finished his act of service. The one sacrifice he offered did take away sins. And so now its effect continues day after day, again and again. By one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. So you see, the old covenant couldn't really sanctify us couldn't really make us holy, couldn't really prepare us for God's presence. Uh, But Jesus establishes a new covenant in his blood. The new covenant that Jeremiah had spoken of in Jeremiah 31, which Hebrews 8 quoted in length and he returns to it here in 10.16. The new covenant where the law is no longer external, written on stone, but rather internal, written on the heart. And that is And that's based on the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has come and by his sacrifice of himself enabled God to forgive us, to remember no more. And so sanctification is now possible. The law can be written on our hearts. The new covenant is established. And so the old covenant with its priests and sacrifices set aside for where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So you see, the old covenant with its tabernacle, priests and sacrifices could never really deal with sin. It could never really achieve forgiveness. It could never really make us holy. It could, and it was never meant to. It was just a shadow. It was like a, a sign pointing to Jesus, the true priest, the lasting sacrifice, the new covenant. You know, on our holiday back in April, Karen and I discovered the delightful north coast village of Iluka on the north side of the Clarence River mouth. We had a lovely couple of days in this little town, but how sad it would have been if we'd stopped at the sign pointing to Aluka and just camped on the side of the highway thinking that was all there was. The sign is not the thing. The sign only points to the thing. And so it is with the old covenant. It's not the thing. The tabernacle is not the thing. The priests are not the thing. The the, the, the sacrifices are not the thing. These are shadows, signs, pointing to the new covenant, to the heavenly sanctuary, to the great high priest, to the lasting sacrifice, Jesus. And what this all means is that we can have confidence. Jesus' cross enables our salvation. Jesus' covenant empowers our sanctification so we can be confident. As uh, 10, 19 to 21 puts it, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body and we have a great priest over the house of God. We can actually draw near to God, waltz into the inner tent that only the high priest could enter only once a year 
But more than that, waltz into heaven itself, into the very presence of the living God, because we are covered not by ineffective religious ceremony, but by the blood of Jesus. Because our mediator is not some old covenant priest, but the great priest who sacrificed himself once and for all. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can be confident. That's where verses 19 to 25 take us. Since we have confidence, it says, let us do three things. Three things summed up, I think, by faith, hope and love. Uh, The first let us, in verse 22, really is, is, is the outworking of faith. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus' cross has saved us. Jesus' covenant is sanctifying us. So we can, be, we can confidently draw near to God in faith, absolutely assured of a welcome into his presence, knowing that you have a relationship with him by his grace. So live that relationship by faith. That's really what it's saying. Come to God regularly in prayer. Delight in him and his word. Live in the light of his grace. Not anxious about how we, sorry, how he, or anyone else for that matter, sees us, but confident that you're forgiven. Confident that you are welcomed, that your merciful and faithful high priest will welcome you with great delight. That's drawing near to God in faith. The second that led us in verse 23 is about hope. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. We know he's faithful. Jesus is the big yes to every promise God has ever made. He has fulfilled his promise of a new covenant. He has fulfilled his promise of a welcome into his presence. We know we have eternal life, life as it was meant to be. We know uh, that he will fulfill his promise to return and make all things new. So So don't let go of that hope. Don't let anything get in the way of it. Keep looking to the wonder of the eternity to which God has called you. Hold on to to it with all your might. That's hope. And the third let us, in verse 24, love. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. We need each other if we are to stay confident. We are in it together. Being part of a a new covenant means being part of covenant people. Uh, Jesus said people would know that we are his disciples by the way we love one another. That's his new commandment, to love one another. We need to spur one another on, encourage each other to love, encourage each other to do good, encourage each other to stick to Jesus. That's love. And the main strategy that the writer of the Hebrews suggests to help us to do this to have faith, hope and love, is what we're doing right now. Meeting together, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. It would seem that some of the congregation this sermon is addressed to had discontinued regular fellowship with other Christians. And the writer's saying that that's just, that's just not good enough. 
If we are to be confident Christians, we need to meet together, to keep coming here on Sundays, to keep attending home groups, because that's what church is about, helping each other stay competent, drawing near to God together to strengthen our faith, reminding each other of our faithful God to hold on to our hope, encouraging each other to love and to do good. Now, we face attacks on our confidence all the time from people who dismiss our faith or just ignore it and from the broken world that can so easily batter us with illness, with financial worries, with fractured relationships, with whatever. So we need each other to point each other back to Jesus. We need to connect with each other and to draw near to God together. And we face temptations to put our confidence in other gods like the god IT worshipped at the Apple Temple, or the god Money worshipped at the ASX Temple, or the god Career worshipped in many a workplace, or the god's retirement or intellect or beauty or sexuality, or I could go on. So we need each other to point each other back to Jesus. We need to connect with each other, to draw near to God together. That's why the writer to the Hebrews then adds another warning in verse 20. If we deliberately keep on sinning, After we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. If we turn our backs on Christ's last sacrifice, there's none left. Turning away from God was bad enough under the the covenant of Moses. It will be even worse for those who show contempt for the Son of God. It's, It's like they're nailing him to the cross all over again. And he's our judge. That shouldn't be forgotten. It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So we need each other. We need to help each other on the way. And the writer of the Hebrews is modelling what that really looks like. You know, he's already warned them, given the warning now from verse 12. He he, he tells them, remember the past. How... You know, how you stood up to the pressure in the past. You suffered with those in prison. You joyfully accepted the property being confiscated because they knew what Jesus had in store for them. that's, That's where they were. So hold on, he says, spurring them on. Don't throw away that confidence, he encourages them. Help each other to stick with it. And then he quotes scripture. He quotes Habakkuk from Habakkuk 2 to help them persevere. Jesus is coming, so live by faith. That's a great model of encouragement, a warning, a pointing to the past, pointing to scriptures, spur each other on. And as the chapter closes, he assures them, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. We can be confident in the lasting sacrifice of our Saviour. Let's keep drawing near in faith, holding on to our hope and encouraging each other in love. And we're going to do that in a moment as we share in the Lord's Supper, as we together draw near to the wonderful mystery of the cross, our lasting sacrifice, the cross that saves us, to the new covenant that transforms us, to the confidence that we can have because of Jesus' sacrifice. Let's encourage each other now. Let's encourage each other over lunch. Let's encourage each other always as we, as, as we see the day of his return approaching. Let's pray. 
Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for the confidence that we can have because of who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you, Lord, that, uh, yeah, you're no, no priest who needs to continue to sacrifice, but you are the one who's given yourself for us so that we know that we can be confident to walk into God's presence. So that when you died, the, the, the curtain in the temple was torn in two. And so now we can know that we can come into your presence. We know that we will receive a welcome uh, into your presence, not because of anything in us, but purely because of your grace. Lord, help us to, to not only celebrate that now, but to live that in our lives. Help us to encourage one another in it, to hold each other up in it, so that we can glorify you in all that we do. Amen. Amen. And now we're going to sing.